Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Published in 1847, it looks at a wealthy young man from southern England seeking peace and restfulness in Yorkshire. I'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast, and I hope it helps you fall asleep. Thank you to T-Money123 on Apple iTunes, and for Sarah Dick via the boytosleep.com website. I'm glad the readings have helped you out, and your reviews and ratings really do help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. To all listeners, you're always welcome to say hello or support the podcast at boyyoutosleep.com, and if you'd be so kind to leave a review and rating in your podcast app, that'd really help out. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Wuthering Heights Chapter 1 1801 I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbour that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society. A perfect misanthropist heaven and Mr. Heathcliff and I such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. A capital fellow. He little imagined how my heart warmed towards him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under their brows. As I rode up, and when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution, still further in his waistcoat, as I announced my name. Mr. Heathcliff, I said. A nod was the answer. Mr. Lockwood, your new tenant, sir. I do myself the honour of calling as soon as possible after my arrival to express the hope that I have not inconvenienced you by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrush Cross Grange. I heard yesterday you had had some thoughts. Thrush Cross Grange is my own, sir, he interrupted, wincing. I should not allow anyone to inconvenience me. If I could hinder it, walk in. The walk-in was uttered with closed teeth and expressed the sentiment, Go to Juice. Even the gate over which he leant manifested no sympathising movements towards the words. And I think that circumstance determined me to accept the invitation. I felt interested in a man who seemed more exaggeratedly reserved than myself. When he saw my horse's breast fairly pushing the barrier, 
he did put out his hand to unchain it, and then sullenly preceded me up the causeway, calling as we entered the court, Joseph, take Mr. Lockwood's horse and bring up some wine. Here we have the whole establishment of domestics, I suppose. I was the reflection suggested by this compound order. No wonder the grass grows up between the flags, and cattle are the only hedge cutters. Joseph was an elderly, nay, old man, very old, perhaps, though hale and sinewy. The Lord help us, he soliloquized in an undertone of peevish displeasure, while relieving me of my horse, looking, meantime, in my face so sourly that I charitably conjectured he must have need of divine aid to suggest his dinner, and his pious ejaculation had no reference to my unexpected advent. Wuthering Heights is the name of Mr. Heathcliff's dwelling, Wuthering being a significant provincial adjective, descriptive of the atmosphere tumult to which its station is exposed in stormy weather. Pure, bracing ventilation they must have up there at all times, indeed. One may guess the power of the north wind blowing over the edge by the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house, and by a range of gaunt thorns all stretching their limbs one way, as if craving arms of the sun. Happily, the architect had foresight to build it strong. The narrow windows are deeply set in the wall, and the corners defended with large jutting stones. Before passing the threshold, I paused to admire a quantity of grotesque carving lavished over the front, and especially about the principal door, above which, among a wilderness of grumbling griffins and shameless little boys, I detected the date 1500, and name Hareton Earnshaw. I would have made a few comments and requested a short history of the place from the surly owner, but his attitude at the door appeared to demand my speedy entrance or complete departure, and I had no desire to aggravate his impatience previous to inspecting the penetralium. One stop brought us into the family sitting room without any introductory lobby or passage. They call it here the house preeminently. It includes kitchen and parlour generally. But I believe at Wuthering Heights the kitchen is forced to retreat altogether into another quarter. At least I distinguished a chatter of tongues and a clatter of culinary utensils deep within, and I observed no signs of roasting, boiling, or baking about the huge fireplace, 
nor any glitter of copper saucepans and tin colanders on the walls. One end, indeed, reflected splendidly both light and heat from ranks of immense pewter dishes, interspersed with silver jugs and tankards, towering row after row on a vast oak dresser to the very roof. The latter had never been underdrawn. Its entire anatomy lay bare to an inquiring eye, except where a frame of wood laden with oat cakes and clusters of legs of beef, mutton and ham concealed it. Above the chimney were sundry villainous old guns and a couple of horse pistols, and by way of ornament, three gaudily painted canisters disposed along its ledge. The floor was of smooth white stone, the chairs high-backed, primitive structures, painted green, one or two heavy black ones lurking in the shade. In an arch under the dresser reposed a huge, liver-coloured bitch pointer surrounded by a swarm of squealing puppies and other dogs haunted other recesses. The apartment and furniture would have been nothing extraordinary as belonging to a homely northern farmer with a stubborn countenance and stalwart limbs set out to advantage in knee breeches and gaiters. Such an individual seated in his armchair, his mug of ale frothing on the round table before him, is to be seen in any circuit of five or six miles along these hills, if you go at the right time after dinner. But Mr. Heathcliff forms a singular contrast to his abode and style of living. He is a dark-skinned gypsy in aspect, in dress and manners a gentleman, that is, as much a gentleman as many a country squire, rather slovenly perhaps, yet not looking amiss with his negligence, because he has an erect and handsome figure, and rather morose. Possibly, some people might suspect him of a degree of underbred pride. I have a sympathetic chord within me that tells me it is nothing of the sort. I know by instinct his reserve springs from an aversion to showy displays of feeling, to manifestations of mutual kindliness. He'll love and hate equally, undercover, and esteem it a species of impertinence to be loved or hated again. No, I'm running on too fast. I bestow my own attributes over-liberally on him. Mr. Heathcliff may have entirely dissimilar reasons for keeping his hand out of the way when he meets a would-be acquaintance, 
to those which actuate me. Let me hope my constitution is almost peculiar. My dear mother used to say I should never have a comfortable home, and only last summer I proved myself perfectly unworthy of one. While enjoying a month of fine weather at the sea coast, I was thrown into the company of a most fascinating creature, a real goddess in my eyes, as long as she took no notice of me. I never told my love vocally. Still, if looks have language, the merest idiot might have guessed I was over head and ears. She understood me at last and looked a return. The sweetest of all imaginable looks. And what did I do? I confess it with shame, shrunk icily into myself. Like a snail, at every glance, retired colder and farther, till finally the poor innocent was led to doubt her own senses, and overwhelmed with confusion at her supposed mistake, persuaded her mamma to decamp. By this curious turn of disposition, I have gained the reputation of deliberate heartlessness. How undeserved I alone can appreciate. I took a seat at the end of the hearthstone, opposite that towards which my landlord advanced, and filled up an interval of silence by attempting to caress the canine mother, who had left her nursery and was sneaking wolfishly to the back of my legs, her lip curled up and her white teeth watering for a snatch. My cares provoked a long, guttural gnarl. You'd better let the dog alone, growled Mr. Heathcliff in unison, checking fiercer demonstrations with a punch of his foot. She's not accustomed to be spoiled, not kept for a pet. Then striding to a side door, he shouted, Joseph. Joseph mumbled indistinctively in the depths of the cellar, but gave no intimation of ascending, so his master dived down to him, leaving me vis-a-vis the rough-ironly bitch and a pair of grim shaggy sheepdogs who shared with her a jealous guardianship over all my movements. Not anxious to come in contact with her fangs, I sat still, but imagining they would scarcely understand tacit insults, I unfortunately indulged in winking and making faces at the trio, and some turn of my physiognomy so irritated Madame that she suddenly broke into a fury and leapt onto my knees. I flung her back and hastened to interpose the table between us. This proceeding aroused the whole hive. Half a dozen four-footed fiends of various sizes and ages 
issued from hidden dens to the common centre. I felt my heels and coat laps peculiar subjects of assault and parrying off the lager combatants as effectually as I could with the poker. I was constrained to demand aloud assistance from some of the household in re-establishing peace. Mr Heathcliff and his man climbed the cellar steps with vexatious phlegm. I don't think they moved one second faster than usual, though the hearth was an absolute tempest of worrying and yelping. Happily, an inhabitant of the kitchen made more dispatch. A lusty dame, with tucked-up gown, bare arms and fire-flushed cheeks, rushed into the midst of us flourishing a frying pan and used that weapon and her tongue to such purpose that the storm subsided magically and she only remained heaving like a sea after a high wind when her master entered on the scene. What the devil indeed is the matter, he asked, eyeing me in a manner that I could ill endure after this inhospitable treatment. What the devil indeed, I muttered, the herd of possessed swine could have had no worse spirits in them than those animals of yours, sir. You might as well leave a stranger with a brood of tigers. They won't meddle with persons who touch nothing, he remarked putting the bottle before me and restoring the displaced table. The dogs do right to be vigilant. Take a glass of wine. No, thank you. Not bitten, are you? If I had been, I would have set my signet on the biter. Heathcliff's countenance relaxed into a grin. Come, come, he said. You are flurried, Mr. Lockwood. Here, take a little wine. Guests are so exceedingly rare in this house that I and my dogs, I am willing to own, hardly know how to receive them. Your health, sir. I bowed and returned the pledge, beginning to perceive that it would be foolish to sit sulking for the misbehaviour of a pack of curs. Besides, I felt loath to yield the fellow further amusement at my expense. Since his humour took that turn, he probably swayed by prudential consideration of the folly of offending a good tenant, relaxed a little in the Laysonic style of chipping off his pronouns and auxiliary verbs and introduced what he supposed would be a subject of interest to me, a discourse on the advantages and disadvantages of my present place of retirement. I found him very intelligent on the topics we touched, and before I went home, I was encouraged so far as to volunteer another visit tomorrow. He evidently wished no repetition of my intrusion.
I shall go notwithstanding. It is astonishing how sociable I feel myself compared with him. Yesterday afternoon, set in misty and cold, I had half a mind to spend it by the study fire, instead of wading through heath and mud to Wuthering Heights. On coming up from dinner, however, I dine between twelve and one o'clock. The housekeeper, a matronly lady, taken as a fixture along with the house, how could not, or would not, comprehend my request that I might be served at five, on mounting the stairs with this lazy intention, and stepping into the room. I saw a servant girl on her knees, surrounded by brushes and coal scuttles, and raising an infernal dust as she extinguished the flames with heaps of cinders. This spectacle drove me back immediately. I took my hat, and after a four-mile walk, arrived at Heathcliff's garden gate, just in time to escape the first feathery flakes of a snow shower. On that bleak hilltop, the earth was hard with a black frost, and the air made me shiver through every limb. Being unable to remove the chain, I jumped over, and running up the flagged causeway bordered with straggling gooseberry bushes, knocked vainly for admittance till my knuckles tingled and the dogs howled. Wretched inmates, I screamed mentally, you deserve perpetual isolation from your species for your churlish inhospitality. At least I would not keep my doors barred in the same time. I don't care, I will get in. So resolved, I grasped the latch and shook it vehemently. Vinegar-faced Joseph protected his head from a round window of the barn. What are you here for, he shouted. Teamaster's down, it fouled. Go round by the end, Laith, if ye want to speak to him. Is there nobody inside to open the door? I hallowed responsively. There's nobody but the missus, and she'll not open it for you. Why, cannot you tell her who I am, Joseph? Not me. I have no nothing to do with it, muttered the head, vanishing. The snow began to drive thickly. I seized the handle to essay another trial, when a young man without coat and shouldering a pitchfork appeared in the yard behind. He hailed me to follow him, and after marching through a wash house and a paved area containing a coal shed, pump and pigeon cot, we at length arrived in the huge, warm, cheerful apartment where I was formerly received. It glowed delightfully in the radiance of immense fire, compounded of coal, peat and wood, and near the table laid for a plentiful evening meal, 
I was pleased to observe the missus, an individual whose existence I had never previously suspected. I bowed and waited, thinking she would bid me to take a seat. She looked at me, leaning back in her chair, and remained motionless and mute. Rough weather, I remarked. I'm afraid, Mrs Heathcliff, the door must bear the consequence of your servants, leisure, attendance. I had hard work to make them hear me. She never opened her mouth. I stared, she stared also. At any rate, she kept her eyes on me in a cool, regardless manner, exceedingly embarrassing and disagreeable. Sit down, said the young man gruffly. He'll be in soon. I obeyed and hemmed and called the villain Juno, who deigned at this second interview to move the extreme tip of her tail in token of owning my acquaintance. A beautiful animal, I commenced again. Do you intend parting with the little ones, madam? They are not mine, said the amiable hostess, more repelling than Heathcliff himself could have replied. Ah, your favourites are among these, I continued, turning to an obscure cushion full of something like cats. A strange choice of favourites, she observed scornfully. Unluckily, there was a heap of dead rabbits. I hemmed once more and drew closer to the hearth, repeating my comment on the wildness of the evening. You should not have come out, she said, rising and reaching from the chimney piece two of the painted canisters. Her position before was sheltered from the light. Now I had a distinct view of her whole figure and countenance. She was slender and apparently scarcely past girlhood, an admirable form, and the most exquisite little face that I have ever had the pleasure of beholding. Small features, very fair, flaxen ringlets, or rather golden, hanging loose on her delicate neck and eyes. Had they been agreeable in expression, that would have been irresistible, Fortunately for my susceptible heart, the only sentiment they evinced hovered between scorn and a kind of desperation singularly unnatural to be detected there. The canisters were almost out of her reach. I made a motion to aid her. She turned upon me as a miser might turn if any one attempted to assist him counting his gold. I don't want your help, she snapped. I can get them for myself. I beg your pardon, I hastened to reply. Were you asked to tea, she demanded, tying an apron over her neat black frock and standing with a spoonful of the leaf poised over the pot. I shall be glad to have a cup, I answered. Were you asked, she repeated, no, I said, half smiling. You are the proper person to ask me. 
she flung the tea back, spoon and all, and resumed her chair in a pet, her forehead corrugated, and her red underlip pushed out like a child's ready to cry. Meanwhile, the young man had slung on to his person a decidedly shabby upper garment, and standing himself before the blaze, looked down on me from the corner of his eyes, for all the world as if there was some mortal feud unavenged between us. I began to doubt whether he were a servant or not. His dress and speech were both rude, entirely devoid of the superiority observable in Mr. and Mrs. Heathcliff. His thick brown curls were rough and uncultivated. His whiskers encroached bearishly over his cheeks, and his hands were unbrowned like those of a common labourer. Still his bearing was free, almost haughty, and he showed none of a domestic's assiduity in attending on the lady of the house. In the absence of clear proofs of his condition, I deemed it best to abstain from noticing his curious conduct, and five minutes afterwards, the entrance of Heathcliff relieved me, in some measure, from my uncomfortable state. And that concludes tonight's readings. If you're not quite yet falling asleep, please feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night.